Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Disruptive Voices. My name is Katriona Gold, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lou Graham, who is a Wellcome Trust Fellow and a Senior Research Fellow here at UCL. Thank you for joining me today, Lou. Thanks, Katriona. As you know, we're speaking today as part of UCL's Grand Challenge of Global Health, which is supporting an initiative to connect and advocate for critical global health scholarship at UCL. And as part of that, we're trying to establish what critical global health means to UCL scholars. So Lou, that's my first question to you. What does critical global health mean to you? And perhaps you could also tell us a bit about how your work relates to it. That's a big question. What does critical global health mean? I mean, it means quite a lot of different things. But I think for me, critical global health centrally means practicing global health in a way, whether you're talking about research, teaching or doing policy, with a clear view about the role of power and politics. For me, there are three different ways in which that plays out. So one is going beyond the medical and biological frameworks for looking at health and looking at social, environmental, commercial, political and economic determinants of health. Secondly, by going beyond looking at health outcomes and solely achieving health outcomes at population level, but also looking at health equity and justice. And thirdly, not shying away from more controversial issues such as racism, sexism and other forms of oppression and the role they play in producing ill health. I mean, my research relates to this in many different ways. I am a senior um, research fellow at UCL, as you explained, and my Welcome Fellowship, it looks at collective action to address violence against women by grassroots communities. And so there are many ways in which this topic really tries to take critical lengths at global health. So for many years, violence against women wasn't even considered a public health issue in the first place because it's not a clear sort of biological outcome like a bacterium or a virus, but it's a social issue. So people would relegate it to sociology or other disciplines. Now it is widely recognized as a public and global health issue, but still it's an issue which arises out of power inequalities and relates to issues of power at many different levels, including both political, societal, the economic, the relational, psychological level. And so it's really quite challenging and complex problem to tackle. And so in my work, uh, what I'm looking at is to what extent can ordinary people, can ordinary communities play a role in tackling a quite entrenched societal issue? And so here we're talking about shifting balances of power and engaging with these issues of power at the multiple levels, including issues about power balances between men and women and between institutions and local communities and even between different women who are intersectionally located at the different levels of power and privilege. I guess what you could tell us a, a bit about too is, is, you know, where exactly are you working at the moment? Do you work across countries? Do you work in one country? Where's your work sort of located? And what kind of issues do you need to be aware of in the context you're working in, perhaps specifically? So one very important part of my work is that it's locally cited and it's quite deeply embedded in the local context. So in epidemiology, we have a kind of slightly derogatory term about sort of work that takes place in lots of different geographies, lots of different contexts, but at sort of 
more superficial level, we call it sort of helicopter research, where you just sort of like helicopter in for a week, do your research and then leave again, and then draw sort of sweeping conclusions about the whole population based on that. So I have conducted work in South Asia for over 10 years. And the current work I'm doing with the Welcome Trust takes place in Mumbai. We work in informal settlements, sometimes called slums in Mumbai, where we work with quite poor and underprivileged women and men in the communities to try to tackle issues around gender-based violence. Right. And so I think when you work locally like that, that allows you also to look into the complexity and take all those different factors into account. Because obviously, if you work across many different contexts, it becomes way too complicated to sort of unify. So working in a specific context allows you to be more critically attentive, perhaps, to the specificities. That makes sense to me. I mean, it sounds like from talking to you earlier that your work is quite interdisciplinary. And I was wondering, since questions about coloniality and decoloniality loom large in your research, how do they play out in the other disciplines you straddle? Or how do you sort of approach bridging these critical concepts across disciplines? Or, you know, what do you take from the disciplines that you're drawing from? So I think that's a really important question. I've worked for many, many years in this local context to be really embedded in it and to develop relationships with local NGOs and local populations that we work with. So in some sense, you can challenge or manage this kind of power differential that always comes in when you work as a researcher based in a rich, wealthy Western institution with more marginalized people in India. So the work I do currently, you know, I think now because we're looking at collective action, we're looking at what motivates populations and communities to take action together to address violence against women. In this research, we work quite interdisciplinarily. So we work together with psychologists and economists and people from many different kinds of disciplines. And it's interesting to see the same kind of dialogues that we're having in global health about how to approach our fields critically and how to decolonize the fields, how to address power differentials within our fields, play out in other fields as well. So, for example, in the field of psychology, there's long been a discussion that's still very lively and it's been taking place for a long time about the way in which the vast majority of sort of classic research, sort of like the classic textbook experiments that students learn about, have all taken place in sort of predominantly white American undergraduate populations. And based on the experiments with these students or these populations, you know, psychology textbooks teach you that this is universal human nature we're learning about. And this is teaching us about how people are everywhere. And so in 2010, there was a systematic review or sort of a nature paper that came out that sort of had the title, the weirdest people in the world. And they coined this acronym WEIRD, which means sort of white, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic people, which are kind of a very small and select subgroup of the whole population in the world. And they remarked how when you looked at the results of psychological experiments that people did with this particular type of people, they produced uh, often quite different results from what you get when you do the same experiments, people from elsewhere in the world. And so there's, for the past 10, 20 years, there's been a real movement in psychology to try to address this and to try to 
collect samples or do experiments with people from outside of the Western world, from outside of the rich worlds, in order to establish more generalizable, more sort of sensible conclusions about how people behave, how people think, and how people act in the world. Still, I think there is quite a long way to go. So especially during COVID, but even before COVID, there was a real shift within the discipline of psychology towards doing online experiments rather than experiments with people physically in a lab. And the danger of using online experiments is that you get a very select sample. And so people would often have online participants in Germany and the US and Sweden, and then they would add one online sample from India and say, this represents Indian culture. And so that's very problematic because you can see that, you know, given very high literacy rates, given that not everybody has access to technology, especially internet technology in India, and that access can be distributed along lines of privilege like gender or caste or economic power, you get a very select sample of people that you're trying to establish conclusions about sort of in quotation marks Indian culture when you do these experiments. That's really interesting. So part of the question being about what assumptions going into research with being based on these sort of inherently flawed studies, right? I mean, obviously no study is going to be perfect, but Hmm. I would imagine that would apply similarly to say economics or maybe some of the other disciplines that you work with too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also long been, you know, economists have also, which they are trying to address, but which they have long complained about is how if, again, you do a study on economic behavior in the U.S., then it gets published in a general purpose economic journal, a high impact economic journal, a sort of like new discoveries about economic behavior of people in general. But if you submit a study of economic behavior in a sort of not traditionally Western population, even if it takes place in the West, but you're studying like immigrant populations in the West, then the editor might desk reject your paper and say that, oh, you know, I think your paper is a bit too special interest and why don't you send it to a journal that focuses on development studies or on non-Western populations or a different journal rather than a general interest journal. But I mean, they are trying to address it. I would say it's really unfair to say that this is you know, how it is in the field in general, but it is something that people have been complaining about. I think that cuts across a lot of disciplines, yeah. right? The idea of the, that you've got the universal figure who's actually part of the global minority, like Western. And yes. I mean, when I was talking to um, David Osrin for this same podcast, he was talking about kind of a move towards instead of talking about the global south or I do research in the global south or kind of a region or whatever to talk about the specific city because he does urban work right the specific city that you're working in and so to kind of try to avoid certain sorts of sweeping generalizations maybe this sort of helicopter factor that you were referencing earlier yes so like being attentive to that specificity and that's something that obviously people could be equally attentive to whether they're working with northern or southern or populations anywhere in the world so i think those are really interesting points no it's true i mean ultimately there's always a tension within academic research there's a tension between sort of like trying to establish theories and trying to develop interventions and solutions. And so when you're trying to establish theory, you're trying to say something general because that's the point of having a theory. So you're trying to say something general about how populations behave or how diseases behave or how people engage with health issues. 
But when you're designing interventions, you're always designing an intervention for a specific context. And so you want to add as much specificity into it as you can, because ultimately your intervention is judged on whether it was helpful to people or not helpful, regardless of sort of like how elegant or how beautiful your intervention design is. And so global health has to grapple quite squarely with this tension between theory and intervention, because as an academic, your goal is to produce theories because theories can be used more widely. You can design an intervention that works fantastically for one context, but if it only works for that one context, then you're really a program planner and you're not in the business of doing research, whereas research is more about coming up with ideas that people can use across different contexts and can use in many different places. And that's a key tension. Yeah. yeah. A lot of us, I think, in our research. And perhaps leaving that question sort of open or on the table as something that we should be thinking about perhaps as we go forward with this project, that would be a good place for us to end. There's a lot more we could discuss. But okay. for now, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your insight with us, Lou. Sure. Thanks so much. This podcast was hosted by Katriona Gold and produced by the UCL Grand Challenges team with the help of Professor Sarah Gibbon, Professor Megan Vaughan and Nina Quach. Today's guest was Dr. Lou Graham and the music is by David Seste. If you'd like to hear more perspectives on this concept of critical global health, please check out the other short podcasts in this series. For a longer listen, you can head to the UCL Grand Challenges YouTube page to find our recent interdisciplinary roundtable discussion on this topic with scholars from across UCL. For more episodes of Disruptive Voices, visit UCL Minds or follow us on Twitter at, at @grandchallenges. Grand